0: Good afternoon and welcome to Upbeat Live. I'm Veronica Krausis and of course our our guest has uh, no need of introduction, but I will brag for you for a little bit. Um, John Adams, the creative chair for the uh, the LA Phil, brilliant composer, brilliant conductor, all round good egg. But the other thing, sorry, I don't know where that came from, but it's true. he is the 2019 recipient of the Erasmus Prize, which is a prize that is presented to an individual for their contribution to European culture. And in its entire history, only three Americans have ever won. Oh, I'm sorry, wait, three composers have ever won. Messiaen, Kagel, and now John Adams. And then also, oh wait, but he's the first American ever to get this prize. Presented by the King of Netherlands in November. I think you, I think you should get a cape or something to wear, no? (laughs) So today is the fourth uh, presentation of your newest piano concerto um, and it's been a complete success so far. Have you been having
1: fun? Oh yes, Um, you know as a composer it's always risky to sit out in the audience. (laughs) I remember uh, sitting through a the whole first act of my um, opera, Dr. Atomic, at the Metropolitan Opera, next to a, a young guy, it looked like he was probably in, I don't know, stock market or something, and he'd brought his date, and um, it was clearly not what they were expecting. And and because um, <clears throat> he had no idea it was me, so after about five minutes, he took out his Blackberry and cleaned out his inbox for the rest of the night. <laughs>
0: Did he stay for the whole performance? No. OK, so he, he never realized it was you who was sitting beside him? No. OK. <laughs> oh, so this this piece is the uh, newest commission um, for the LA Phil to celebrate its centenary. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about the title?
1: Yes, the title is uh, a question mark. Must the devil have all the good tunes? And uh, you know, I just ran across the quote, um, Reading an old issue of the New Yorker, and I just thought it was a great title. I love a title that's a question mark, and um, the uh, idea of the devil. I knew I was going to be writing a concerto for a woman with an absolutely diabolical uh, technical command, Yuja Wang, and also, you know, that you know this sort of. Uh, devilish theme um, has a history in piano literature, certainly with the virtuoso music of people like Franz Liszt, who in fact wrote a piece called Totentance for piano and orchestra, which means the dance of death, and it's based on the famous Dies Erie theme. Um, so I thought that title, I figured it was probably by Chuck Berry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you can't copyright uh, a text, however, uh, there's no copyright on titles, <laughs> so I thought I could borrow what I thought was the Chuck Berry. But it turns out that the, t- the quote is not by Chuck Berry at all, it's by Martin Luther. So um, I, I go with it anyway.
0: <laughs> so it's, in some ways it's, it's a very traditional uh, concerto. You've got three movements. What, what's unusual about it?
1: Well, first of all, that they're all um, one movement melds right into the other, so there's no uh, space between them. The first movement uh, begins at a sort of slow, very funky tempo in the uh, piano, and then takes off into a into an up tempo thing, which which remains pretty much regular for the rest of the movement. And then there's a transition, and then a a very delicate uh, second movement, and that too kind of just gradually grows into into the last movement.
0: And I love the the expression marking for the first movement.
1: Uh, You mean Allegro Moderato? No, no, it's not Allegro Moderato. No, it doesn't say Allegro Moderato. It says, well, there are two tempo markings, the first one is uh, what is it? Gritty? Gritty, okay. funky, in, but in strict tempo, and then, the, then when it moves faster, the tempo indication is um, twitchy, and, and bot-like. <laughs> and it's,
0: it's a lovely opening. Um, you, you've, you've got a rhythm that's sort of slightly irregular. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, so it kind of keeps you off-kilter. But there's also a sort of a a nod to a kind of a bass line that's quite famous? Yes, yes. Popular? Um, uh,
1: Since I was writing this for a Los Angeles audience, um, there's a a nod to uh, Peter Gunn.
0: (laughs) In In the orchestra, you'll notice that there are two very interesting instruments that you normally don't see. In, in symphony orchestras, and how did, how did you choose to... Bring well, your- one is the,
1: the bass guitar, which, you know, we normally associate with rock and roll, but um, it's a really marvelous instrument, and we have one of the, the great um, studio uh, bass players in the world here in Los Angeles, Mike Valerio, and uh, he played in my big oratorio that I wrote for Gustavo about four, four years ago, uh, the Gospel According to the Other Mary, and I just love the sound of the bass guitar. It's not uh, overwhelming, it's very subtle, but it's there and it adds this marvelous kind of lush bass to the orchestral texture. The other instrument is what I call in the score a a honky-tonk piano and that's been kind of controversial this week because everybody sees it and is looking for it and you won't see one and in fact uh, just for these performances we're using a sampled Keyboard and the reason for that is that the um, Orchestra's taking this concerto on tour to Asia and the you know the problem of obtaining a, an upright piano and then destroying it to make it honky-tonk was causing trouble with our Operations staff, so I, I agreed that uh, we would use an electric one for just these performances
0: and it's also slightly out of tune I still haven't been able to find out how they tuned it. Do you know? Uh, Well,
1: these days, on an electronic instrument, there's just a setting.
0: There's a setting that says out-of-tune piano?
1: Uh, Yeah.
0: (laughs) I'm so comforted by out-of-tune pianos because the piano in my studio is, it's microtonal. You know,
1: I was reading a biography of Stravinsky, (laughs) and uh, when he was living in Hollywood, um, uh, somebody went to visit him and was just appalled by the fact that um, he liked to compose on this Really ratty old spinet that was just outrageously out of tune, but something about that sound stimulated his imagination
0: yeah it's true How many times is this piece getting played in the next year let's say
1: i'm not exactly sure i mean um, there, this, there will have been four performances this week, and then i th- think it's being done at the Hollywood Bowl. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. And then um, the orchestra's bringing it back in the fall and recording it with Yuja. And then they're touring sure. next week uh, in in Seoul and Tokyo and then later on in New York and Edinburgh. But I'm also doing it myself with two marvelous pianists, Jeremy Denk, uh, who's a really great American pianist, I'm going to be doing that in St. Louis and Seattle, and then with a really um, very special young Icelandic pianist, Vikinger Olafsson, and I'll be doing it with him um, in several cities in in Europe. So I feel very lucky, Uh, and I (laughs) breathed a sigh of relief this week that the piece was okay. You know, imagine if there were 20 performances of a piece that was a dog. Uh,
0: have you ever written a dog?
1: I have written some dogs.
0: Okay. <laughs> which, which performance is more nerve-wracking, the premiere or subsequent ones?
1: Premiere. Actually, the most nerve-wracking moment is the first rehearsal. Oh. Because, um, you know, the orchestra doesn't know it, and so they play everything loud. They're just focusing on trying to keep it together. And, um, you know, it's sort of... A, for those of you who wear, who wear glasses like I do, if you take your glasses off, that, that's kind of what it the analogy to sound would be. It's just kind of blurry. Um, and then over the course of the following rehearsals, you know, you start to put your glasses on. And I would say the first the first performance was basically an adrenaline rush, Um, you know, it held together, and it was brilliant, and of course that's the one that gets reviewed, Uh, (laughs) Mr. Adams, (laughs) and um, then the second was a little cautious, and then last night was, was just absolutely really good, I was so satisfied. So, Today should be just gravy.
0: Before we continue with the music, um, what did she wear last night? Uh. (laughs) I wasn't there. Thursday was a green dress, and then yesterday was a black dress. And Was that a dress? Friday, Friday. Her outfit. I thought
1: it was just a top. No, oh no, it's not. She looks fabulous. Uh, yes, Friday, we was, Friday was black. Friday was black. Last, Last night, night was a... Uh, oh, I couldn't describe it without blushing. Well, uh, how about color? It was a kind of um, uh, sort of 1956 Chevrolet pink. Ooh. Well. That part of which was actually a dress, yeah.
0: Got it. So today will be exciting, we'll see what comes. Yeah, comments. the other
1: thing is that, you know, um, Yuja insists on wearing the, the world's uh, uh, highest spike uh, heels, and with the right foot, she operates the, you know, the, the sustain pedal on the piano, and um, she doesn't use printed music where she'd have to have a person looming over turning pages. She uses a, an iPad. Uh, which has the music on it. And she has a wireless uh, little box, a pedal box. And somehow with those amazing stiletto uh, high heels, she's able to effortlessly turn the pages with her foot. You know, it's a funny thing. I, I really think that the whole clothing thing is just this shtick she loves to do. And she can do it because the minute she sits down to play, she is absolutely total focus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a brand new piece. It's it's really difficult and it's rhythmically tricky and, and she just, you know… Effortlessly. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say effortlessly, but it's… Seemingly. It's just done with consummate uh, focus.
0: Right, yeah. Working, I, you have a number of concertos that you've written for, I mean, s- amazing performers. And it was interesting, after the lecture the other night, someone came up to me and said, gee, I've always wanted someone to ask the composer, you know, if you don't play it, how do you write something that you can't play? Because you were a clarinetist, you are a clarinetist. Yeah, I don't
1: play the piano. I've never taken a lesson. Um, I tried, and my daughter, when she was nine, fired me. as her accompanist, after I I blew the Dvořák sonatina, so. Uh, God. No, I, you know, I actually've written quite a bit of piano music, um, and it may be that the just the simple fact that I don't play the piano means that I I approach, you know, writing for it in in a, I guess the word is sui generis, you know, it it it's it's a original way, and. Um, um, pianists seem, seem to like doing it. Um, I think if I were a pianist, probably some of the s- solutions I would come up with you know, would be sort of built into the repertoire and probably wouldn't be original. Whereas not being a pianist, um, <laughs> every time I put my fingers on the keys, it's definitely original. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Have you ever had neighbors complain about noise from your house?
1: Uh, They complain about my dogs, but not my piano.
0: What kind of dogs do you have?
1: I have uh, German short hair pointers. Oh, you do?
0: And can you tell us their names?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yes. Uh, Uh, Unless they're embarrassing. (laughs) Okay, we can go on to something else. Eloise and Amos.
0: Oh, sweeties. And do they sing? When you play piano, do they sing? My dog used to howl when I practiced.
1: No, they don't sing.
0: They don't sing. No. They're, they're a quiet, appreciative audience. Yeah. Good. Okay. So, back to music. <laughs> Sorry, John. Is
1: that the human interest uh, side Yeah. Bar? No, no. Okay. I, I'm, um, a,
0: I'm a dog fan, you know? Dog, dogs are... Yeah, exactly. Um, the, a, apart from working with um, amazing you know, musicians, you've had quite a few brilliant collaborators in your, in your career. I, I'm thinking Peter Sellers for one. Would you talk for a little bit about those people and how you, you know, working with them and the inspiration and the collaboration it creates?
1: Oh, it's, it's everything is different. I mean I've had a 30-35 year collaboration with the great stage director Peter Sellers and we've done something like uh, five operas and two oratorios and a show uh, for which I wrote 24 pop songs. Um, and I've worked, uh, I wrote another piano concerto about 24 years ago for the great pianist Emmanuel Axe. And um, more recently I conducted with uh, Leela Josefovitz a, a big piece called Scheherazade Point Two, um, which she has now played I think she told me about 65 times um, as she just is doing it this weekend with the Baltimore Symphony. And with Leela, you know, it was a really intense back and forth. Again, of course, I don't play the violin, so I would send her things and she would, you know, mark it up and then take a picture with her iPhone and email it to me back. Um, And I've worked with a lot of really great singers, Uh, Gerald Finley. Um, the wonderful late Sanford Sylvan, um, now Julia Bullock, whom I'm so thrilled to be writing for. Uh, in the case with youja, it, it was not such a close collaboration. I, would, I sent her I finished the piano part about six months ago, and I sent it to her, um, and she looked at it, and, and you know, she had a couple of just minor comments, but mostly that she said, "I, c- I can only reach a ninth." Which is amazing when you hear the music that she plays. That her hands are actually small and can't reach certain intervals, um, but um, she, you know, she basically took it took it as it was. And and um, I didn't really hear her play it until a week ago today, which is unusual. Usually, I hear something many months in advance and tweak it. And um, but it. Um, I was very satisfied with what I heard. Great.
0: So, are there going to be any tweaks to this, or it's it's done?
1: I'm not changing the piano part any, but I may just flush out a sorry, flesh out uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a few uh, orchestral things. Once in a while, you know, you you hear things, and you hear maybe a little hole in the texture. They're very minor things, but I'm. Uh, uh, unlike some pieces which I really had to take back and kind of strip down to the studs again and, and work on. I'm, I'm quite satisfied with this.
0: Which piece did you have to do that with?
1: Uh, I did, uh, the first piece, uh, one of my opus one or opus two, a piece called Shaker Loops, uh, which is now a very popular piece and gets played a lot. Um, I, I had to do a huge amount of revision on that. I didn't really know what I was doing in those days, and I was just sort of kind of wandering in the dark, and I found these great ideas, but I just didn't quite put them together properly. Uh, more recently, the opera that I wrote for, uh, about the California Gold Rush called Girls of the Golden West, uh, which was, thank you, <laughs> my poor opera. Uh, <laughs> It's, it, you know, has been a lot of, received a lot of sort of grumbling criticism and um, what I've learned is that most people won't say anything about an instrumental piece because they'll figure that, you know, composers are geniuses. It comes with a job description and, and they won't say anything. Of course, we aren't, but, uh, but everybody has an opinion about opera, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be walking my dog down the street, and somebody I've never seen before will hail me and st- walk across the street, and I'll think, oh no, here we go, and, <laughs> and uh, tell me how upset he was that such and such a character didn't come back in the last scene or something. Um, but I did that, that, that opera, I, I, um, I quite radically changed uh, a whole scene, and I did some cuts. And then I heard it last week in Amsterdam, and um, I'm going to cut it some more. Okay,
0: good, all right. Opera is—it's such an interesting beast because if you're writing instrumental music, you know, you're in the room by yourself. You write, you send it off, you get some suggestions. But uh, why? What is it about opera that you love so much?
1: Well, I love—you know—I I mean, if you looked, for example, if you open the New Yorker and you see what the Met is offering you would be convinced that opera is simply an art form that stopped sometime around 1920 or so, you know, with Puccini or Strauss Um, and one could make the case that, you know, with movies and video and everything, it's just an antiquated art form, but I I don't think it is and I think that combination of live singing and orchestra and lights and staging is a very, very powerful, expressive, tool, tool is not even the right word, expressive experience, and I've chosen mostly to deal with stories that I believe are archetypal of our experience as Americans, whether it was Nixon in China, which is about the collision of capitalism versus communism and big egos of International heads of state, or the Death of Klingoffer, which was about terrorism, the atomic bomb, and in, in, uh, um, Dr. Atomic, and the Gold Rush opera, which you know takes place in 1850, is really about what's going on right now in this country. It's about um, you know the g- greed for material wealth and the terrible uh, racism that went on in California and. The, 1850s. It opened in San Francisco and I think a lot of people had difficulty with it because they just, you know, especially in San Francisco with the 49ers and everything, people really liked the kind of cuddly, friendly, television John Wayne version of The Gold Rush when we really told the story as it really was and I think it upset a lot of people.
0: Who is the librettist for that?
1: Uh, that, that sources are actually all um, original source material uh, letters wonderful letters by a, a woman very literate woman who came from Massachusetts and spent a year and a half living under impossible conditions in a grubby miners' camp up in the Sierras and um, some memoirs and newspaper accounts and um, and and peter seller's uh, kind of collated them and organized them and then I did a lot of, uh, of rewriting to make them more singable. Mm-hmm.
0: Wonderful. And what's your next project?
1: Well I'm writing a piece uh, for Michael Tilson Thomas, a very old friend. Um, uh, I had really good luck with him because he pestered me in 1985 to write a fanfare and that was the last thing I wanted to do and I grumbled and wrote something which turned out to be something uh, a short piece called Short Ride in a Fast Machine, which um, gets a performance I'd say almost every other day of, of the year, somewhere in the world. So I think he has a good touch, and I, I hope the next one will have half that uh, shelf life.
0: Does it have a title yet, or you're looking… Um, <sighs> or is it a surprise?
1: You know, I've got the title, but I'm not quite sure. I want to let it out the door yet.
0: <laughs> TBA. Okay. Um, there, it's um, it's interesting. There's a parallel universe going on right now. Uh, Tom Addis has his new piano concerto being done in Boston, and the Mephisto Waltz is on that program as well. And so, and you have yours here on the West Coast um, with with the Mahler. So that we've we bookended. America this weekend. So it, the, the world is balanced. Um, I know that you have to get back. Um, so I will say thank you. Congratulations very much thank on you. your piece. And I'll stay for a bit and chat a bit more.
1: Thank you.
0: Congratulations. He's a god, right? <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's interesting, my first interview with John Adams was about 10 years ago when he first started here at the Phil. And the piece was a premiere, but it was also paired with Mahler's First, which is it's kind of uh, interesting serendipity. So in 10 more years, we'll be here with his new work and, and Mahler's First again. So I thought in the little bit of time that we have left, I'll, I'll just talk a little bit about Mahler. And, um, and then, then you get to go to the concert and see what Yuja Wang is wearing. Okay, <laughs> I'm being flippant about that, but she's just an amazing pianist. Yeah, um, it, it, uh, Mahler is an interesting composer in that he really elicits strong reactions in people. And there are those who find his music too neurotic or banal, and then there is the true dedicated Mahler fan who, with Mahler's music, it rises to the level of religion. All right. So who came here for the Mahler today? Who came here for John Adams? Ah, oh. Really? Okay. Uh, Well, it was an either-or question. It had to be. (laughs) Yeah. So that wasn't quite fair. Um, But anyway, Uh, Mahler was born in 1860, and he was born to a large German-speaking family, a Jewish family, in Bohemia. And he started to show musical talent at an early age and then went to study piano and composition at the Vienna Conservatory. There's a a really fun story about Mahler when he was a very young boy, he snuck into the synagogue with his mother under her skirts and they were singing a, a community hymn. And he all of a sudden started howling, be quiet, it's horrible. And, and then when he finally managed to get everyone quiet, he then started to sing his own favorite song. So I guess that was sort of, you know, foreshadowing that he would become a conductor or, and or composer. Um, you know, and it's interesting, we think of Mahler as a con- uh, composer first often, but in fact, his... Um, Um, His sort of international reputation during the time of his life was as a conductor. He conducted operas. Um, He was at the Vienna State Opera, uh, Vienna Opera, for about ten years, and then went to New York for four. Uh, But it's interesting that as such an esteemed opera conductor, he never wrote an opera. His output was um, almost entirely uh, orchestral songs and nine complete symphonies, and. um, he really expanded the symphony in terms of its length, also in terms of its instrumental forces that he used, his orchestral forces. So, as an example, his eighth symphony is nicknamed the Symphony of a Thousand because he had something like 850 singers and 171 orchestral musicians. So, you know, Mahler wrote to a friend of his saying, we moderns need great forces to express our ideas, be they great or small. Because if we want thousands to hear us in the overlarge auditoriums of our concert halls and opera houses, we simply have to make a lot of noise. It, and I always think, if he was born now, would he be, you know, would he be Nine Inch Nails, Guns N' Roses, you know, would he be, would would he be someone like that that would be able to reach so many people with that volume? Apart from his music. And conducting, Um, his relationship with his wife Alma is quite infamous. Um, He was 41 and he met the beautiful Alma Schindler at the age, she was 22. She was um, talented, she was a a Viennese socialite, she had gone out with people like Gustav Klimt, the um, the painter and the composer Zemlinski, and I think after four months of their meeting they got married. she was also quite active as a, as a teen musically, but once she was married, Mahler insisted that her prime focus was him and their daughters, uh, which is a little bit of an old-fashioned sort of thing and makes me go, <laughs> but you know, nonetheless, uh, that's, that's what happened. However, she survived her husband because she was so much younger and he died at 50, a very young age. She survived him by almost 50 years And so she became the expert on his life and music however by the early 1900s she started feeling really depressed and stifled by the the, these constraints that her husband had put on her and also their young daughter Maria died Um, so she had an affair with the architect Walter Gruppius whom she actually married after Mahler's death but the, the the affair was devastating for Mahler so that prompted him to take serious interest in her music and arranged for some of her songs to actually be published. And then he died in 1911 from a, a heart infection, infection related to his heart condition. His parents' marriage was an arranged one, and it was one of financial considerations. And his father was very brutal to his mother, and sometimes it was just so painful for Mahler to be in there to see his mother being abused, or also he was the sort of recipient of his father's wrath. So it's interesting that these experiences actually helped shape his musical direction and aesthetic. Apparently, there was one day where it was just too much for the young Mahler to take, so he ran out of the house after one of these episodes. And as he entered the street, there was um, a hurdy-gurdy playing a popular Viennese song in the street. And it was that strange combination of levity and tragedy at the same time that really became a driving feature in his music. In 1910, Mahler had an appointment with a psychoanalyst. Guess who it was? Freud, yeah, exactly. Are are there any other ones? I don't know. There probably are, but anyway. So during that meeting, um, Mahler felt he understood how his childhood um, events constantly uh, um, resulted in him combining, you know, music of really profound emotions along with things that were very commonplace melodies. Freud concluded, this was his conclusion, the conjunction of high tragedy and light amusement was inextricably fixed in Mahler's mind and the one mood inevitably brought with it the other. So confirmation, Um, Mahler's, one of his really famous quotes is, the symphony must be like a world and it must embrace everything. So for him, the world included both light and dark, comic and tragic, the sublime and the trivial. Originally, his first symphony was called a symphonic poem. It was in five movements. And while working on it, he was searching desperately for a title. One of his friends said, why don't you call it Nature Symphony? Thankfully, he didn't do that. <laughs> but he, uh, he found something better and he, he had been uh, influenced by a book called Titan by Jean Paul. So he called uh, his, the symphonic poem Titan. After the premiere, Mahler started editing his piece and he revised quite a bit of the symphony, dropped one of the movements and ditched the title. So it was published in 1899 with a really poetic title. Are you ready? Symphony No. 1 in D. <laughs> but who cares about the title? The music's fantastic. Yeah. So it was a, a four-movement work now, which you'll hear today. Um, and uh, the, the, the title Titan still sometimes sticks because of that. It was written around the same time as his first orchestral song cycle. And one of the songs from The Cycle, the second one, in fact, is I went this morning over the field. And the refrain says, is it not a lovely world? So this is the light side of, of Mahler. And yet, at the end, you get reminded by the, the wayfarer that, uh, that despite this beauty, his happiness will not blossom anymore now, that his love is gone. And this piece was inspired by a breakup Mahler had with um, uh, a, a singer, composers, and singers. Bad mix, bad mix. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll play a little bit of that Wayfarer song because you'll hear that right at the beginning of the symphony. The way that that sounds in the movement, it starts with very softly in the strings, and you'll get one note that's spanning over seven octaves. So it really creates this vast space that gets filled in by hunting horn calls and bird chirps. So this is what the beginning will will sound like. There's the Wayfarer song. Then you know the next theme comes in and the horns start ripping around and the the strings start soaring and the woodwinds feel like they're flocks of birds hovering over everyone. The second movement is a scherzo, and scherzo literally means joke. This is sort of also one of the characteristics of Mahler's music is the idea of parody, which he often does in his pieces, especially with scherzos. This is the one exception. He does not do it in this particular scherzo. Instead, it's a straight ahead sort of rustic peasant dance with a a heavy foot, catchy tunes, and these sort of bagpipe-like sounds. So the scherzo will start like that, there's a middle section that's kind of slinky and sexy and slithery, and then it goes back to that. The third movement was originally subtitled Shipwrecked, a funeral march in the style of Jacques Callot. And Callot was a a Baroque printmaker, but the actual movement is inspired by um, a 19th century woodcut called the Hunter's Funeral Procession. So it's a really, it's a quirky little scene where you get, and it's from a popular Austrian um, children's fairy tale. The animals of the forest are accompanying um, uh, the coffin of a deceased hunter to his final resting place. And there are rabbits carrying little banners and they're preceded by a band of music making cats, toads, crows, deer and other sort of four-legged animals and feathered beasts. And they're sort of walking in the procession and striking these sort of comic dance-like poses. So the, the drawing, as is the movement, is, is, is somewhat ironic and it's humorous and brooding and satirical at the same time. Now, he uses a very well-known tune uh, for this movement that you may recognize. Frère Jacques, Frère Jacques, dormez-vous? Right? Except he does it in a minor mode. So here's a little taste of that. So you have these solo double bass and this drum dirge-like beating underneath. gets a little bit neurotic, and it juxtaposes all sorts of different kinds of music, including things that sound like klezmer music, and then at one point there's a description It sounds like a Salvation Army band, and it's all all sorts of fun. The fourth movement is Dal Inferno Al al Paradiso, after Dante's Divine Comedy, and he described the start of this movement as a horrifying scream that represents the sudden explosion of despair coming from a deeply wounded heart. It's quite violent and there's, you know, blasting and all this sort of stuff. Um, by the end, you get a very beautiful chorale-like theme. Um, you know, when, we, when you hear it, you think, wow, this is loud. And you'll see some of the musicians with earplugs, uh, who especially who are sitting beside the brass. Um, that Mahler asked for a fifth trumpet before the premiere. And he, in this last movement. And so there are already eight horns in this, and pl- there are something like 80 musicians on stage. And I wonder if it was finally loud enough, because apparently, once when Mahler was at Niagara Falls, he stood there and said, Ah, fortissimo, at last. <laughs> <laughs> mm. okay. And the piece, as I said, finishes with a victorious chorale where you're given a bit of a glimmer of hope after a personal hell, and it's a wonderful concert. So thank you for being here. Please enjoy the Adams. It's fantastic. The Mahler's sublime. Have a lovely weekend. Happy Daylight Savings.